1: Hello and welcome to Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Dr. Kat Jarman and today we're going to be talking about an event that took place on this very day exactly 1,228 years ago. On the 8th of June, 793, a devastating attack on the Church of St Cuthbert on Lindisfarne sent shockwaves through Europe and, so the story goes, kick-started what we now call the Viking Age. But why there? What was so special about Lindisfarne to make the heathen raiders from the north attack it? And why has this, technically not the first recorded Viking attack on England at all, been given so much attention? While this Viking raid is a familiar story to many, I want to dig a little deeper into Lindisfarne, also known as the Holy Island, to find out more about its background and what happened next. So, to tell me all about it, I've invited Dr. David Petz, a senior lecturer in archaeology from the University of Durham. Not only is David a specialist in the early medieval archaeology of northern England, but he also leads a new research project at Lindisfarne, excavating the early medieval site to resolve some unanswered questions about its history. And we're going to be hearing exactly what he's discovered so far in a moment. So, thank you so much for joining me here on Gone Medieval, David.
0: It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So I'm really dying to hear more about uh, your ongoing excavations and what you found so far but um, I wanted to just go back to the start really with that event in 793 because obviously uh, this is the anniversary of it. So I was hoping, can you tell me what exactly happened on that day in 793 and how do we know?
0: Well, we've got no archaeological evidence that anything happened. All our evidence for the Viking attack comes from historical historical sources. And so you've got to remember that immediately these are sources which have been recorded by people for particular reasons. So this isn't reporting as we'd understand it. Okay, the modern news report so what we do know is that on june 8th 793 the well-established majorly important early medieval monastic site on holy island is attacked by a a what's described as uh wretched heathen men who attack the church and the, the wider the wider monastic establishment it causes kind of shockwaves across not just Britain, but um, it, it's heard about in Europe. And it's, as you say, it, I think it has its importance as one of the first examples of a Viking raid on Britain. And it gets its particular importance because of Lindisfarne's own significance. This is, this is not just a, a random attack on a random settlement. This is an attack on, on the heart of, of Northumbrian Christendom.
1: So, can you tell us a little bit about that context then? What, what was there before and why was that so important? And, you know, what, what's going on in Northumbria at the time?
0: Well, there's a, been a monastery on Lindisfarne since AD 635. So, the monastery's been there for, you know, 150 years or so. So, it, it's a well-established institution. The Kingdom of Northumbria in this period is one of the most powerful of the many early medieval kingdoms in Britain. Northumbria kind of sits in the middle of Britain it's a central British kingdom so it looks southwards to the big kingdoms of the south, like Mercia, but also within its world are are the Picts to the north, the Scots in Western Scotland, the the British kingdoms of Strathclyde. It kind of sits on a kind of cultural fault zone between the Anglo-Saxons to the south and other groups to the north. So it's an incredibly important kingdom. And Lindisfarne is the most important of its monasteries. It was founded by one of the kings of Northumbria. It retains royal patronage. And by this point, it's become the focus for a major pilgrimage cult to St Cuthbert, who was abbot there and then died and was buried and became a saint. And in this time, it has acquired huge amounts of wealth. It has lots and lots of land, huge blocks of land, both in the immediate area, up into Scotland, down south of the Tyne. And it would have been probably the biggest population centre in Northumbria, certainly north of York. So it's a really important place.
1: So it's likely then that there are a lot of riches there that were ripe right for picking for a Viking army.
0: Yeah, I mean, absolutely. Uh, you can imagine monasteries like this. Northumbria isn't a kingdom which has a huge amount of coin use, certainly not in, in the more northern parts of, of the kingdom, north of Yorkshire. But places like monasteries would have been where you found a lot of portable portable wealth, things you could smash and grab and, and carry away. So you can imagine crosses, reliquaries, shrines, covers from books, personal dress items. So we, we can imagine Anglo-Saxon abbots wearing gold crosses, marks of office. So there's a huge amount of material which could be taken very, very quickly. And I think importantly somewhere like Lindisfarne would have been well known as a, as a centre of exchange on, on a regional and possibly even international scale in this period. So I think the Vikings would have known what they were after and it's clear that they, they deliberately targeted Lindisfarne, they knew about it before they got there.
1: And. Some of these sources now, I know, as you rightly pointed out, right at the beginning, we have to take them perhaps with a pinch of salt or at least consider why they were written down. But they do describe this as something very unexpected, something very new. And does that imply that there was no defence, that this was literally just open, that the locals would essentially not expect anyone to do something like this?
0: I think it's pretty clear from all the sources that it was entirely unexpected. Obviously, once the impact of Viking raiding becomes more established, I think people become more aware of, of the potential. But you know, you, you've really got to remember this really is, apart from like one other example down on the south coast of England, this was really out of the blue there'd never really been anything like it before so that first attack I I think it's just that shocker that anybody would dream of particularly attacking a a monastic a monastic site early early medieval uh, Northumbria it wasn't a peaceful place I mean there's there's plenty of conflict going on but the idea of attacking and sacking a monastery was something qualitatively different to the other kinds of battles and warfare that, that, that was endemic in this period.
1: And do we know what happened afterwards? I mean, was this... uh, Obviously, it's got such significance that we know about it, so so, it's a long time afterwards. But does it mean that the activity there stopped? I think some of the sources suggest that some of the monks were were taken away, a a slave or or killed. But did it continue?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the things we need to remember is this is a very, very early attack, and the tempo of Viking attacks kind of increases progressively over the 9th century. And certainly for lots of sites, they're attacked by by Vikings, but that doesn't deal a death blow. And we know that the monastery on Lindisfarne continues to be there. Well, the traditional story is until 875, and that is... In histories written by later monks from the same community once they were in Durham that's the point they say that the relics of Cuthbert and the other saints were taken away from Lindisfarne and then there's this story how the community from the monastery they go to various other places in northern England before finally ending up in Durham in AD 995 and that's why there's a cathedral in Durham and that's why Cuthbert's relics are in Durham that, that's a direct descendant That's the traditional story, but I think it's increasingly people are realising that even if the abbot and the relics and the the main body of the monastery left, that there was a continued presence even after that date. One thing is people have been starting to re-look at the early medieval sculpture. There's quite a bit of early medieval Anglo-Saxon crosses and that kind of thing. And a lot of that, on our current understanding of the dating, seems to date after the point everyone's meant to left which is a bit of a challenge and that means that there must have been people who were first of all people who wanted to put crosses up people who knew how to make them people who knew how to design them people who were able to pay for them so there's clearly some kind of continued focus and there's been some really interesting reassessment of the historical sources pointing out that actually there are records of the island still being attacked actually by Scots rather than Vikings, and people continuing to go there after the 875 date. So it's pretty clear that there's some kind of continuity on the island. And that's kind of one of the things we're trying to understand ourselves with our own excavations.
1: Brilliant. So thinking then about... In 793, what was actually there? Um, So obviously you said already that there's no evidence of the actual attack, so we don't have a, a ruined building or anything like that, which makes sense again, if it's being reused for such a long time. But what was there? What If you were Viking on that raid, what would you likely have seen when you arrived by your boat?
0: Well, I think like a lot of early medieval monasteries, obviously the heart of the monastery would have been the churches. Big early medieval monastery would have multiple, multiple churches. So I think we can certainly imagine, we, we know that there's early medieval fabric beneath the later medieval monastery there as well. So we've got a possible earlier church beneath that and the bits of the parish church which are next to it also has some probable early medieval bits in it. So certainly they'd probably see two churches in a line uh, which is a very Frankish actually way of laying out churches. There would have been lots of wooden buildings. Anglo-Saxon early me- and early medieval monasteries more generally but not like later medieval monasteries like you might go and see, you know, with the National Trust day out or anything. They don't have lots of stone buildings. You don't have a formal stone cloister. Most buildings would have been wooden. The whole site would have actually just been very, very big, but with probably with fields and paddocks and agricultural areas and workshops. So in that respect, it some ways, it wouldn't have looked massively unfamiliar. I think it's only the stone buildings which would have looked really different and then also we can imagine stone crosses placed around the site there would have been multiple cemeteries we know probably two or three separate locations where there's burials so it would have been big kind of multi-centered sprawling settlements with mainly wooden buildings but these these stone churches right at the center
1: and so who was there then? Are we only talking about monks? Or if you're talking about that, you've got you know animals and, and things like that. Are, could there be families living there, women and, and children as well? Or is it purely monks?
0: Well, one of the things we've been excavating is a, is a cemetery, which seems to date to this period. And it's very clear from our cemetery that the people buried in it are from a wide variety of backgrounds. We've got adult men and women, but we've got children. Now, you, you could be a, a monk at the age of seven, But we've also got babies. We've got at least two examples of women being buried with babies. So it's clear we've got a community certainly being buried in that cemetery, which represents a normal kind of social group. Uh, And one of our questions is whether these are people who also lived on the island. It's big enough to have more than just the monks on the island. It's, it's It's not absolutely tiny. Or whether these are people from the mainland. Or whether these are pilgrims and visitors who've come across from maybe longer distances attracted to the potential for Cuthbert's relics to perform amazing miracles. I think what's pretty clear is the monks owned so much land that there's no way they could have farmed it all themselves. So they must have had tenants who weren't monks who were working their land for them. So I'm pretty happy there would have been more than just monks there.
1: And um, going on to a bit more than your research as you you given us some tantalising clues there already. What, what exactly is it you're looking for? What sort of questions are you trying to answer in your current project?
0: Well we started off with a very basic question of actually where is the Anglo-Saxon Monastery? I think we've always known there's a, a, a monastery on the island because Bede writes about it and it's, it's, it's mentioned in, in early, medieval, early medieval documentary sources but it, we were never absolutely sure where it was. It was probably where we found it under the main village, but no one had ever really carried out any substantial excavation. So that was our, our basic question, was just to find out where it is. And once we'd, we'd located areas of occupation of the right period, we're trying to understand what what life was like for me i'm, I'm interested in, in the daily life of the monks so i'm interested in things in the craft and in the industry we're interested in what they were eating we're interested in how they how they lived you now what, what what was life like on an on an island so we've been yeah we, 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 we're trying to get a sense of of rather than seeing these as as kind of special places with special holy people and somehow isolated from the world i'm really interested in actually seeing how they actually embed into the wider world. That, that's what I think we're really after. OK, Tristan, you've got 50 seconds. Go. Right, so Dan's given me a few seconds to sell The Ancients podcast. What is The Ancients, I hear you say? Well, it's like Dan's show, except just ancient history. We've got the groundbreaking new archaeological discoveries. This seems to be the oldest known dated depiction of the animal world, as far as we can tell, anywhere in the world. We've got the big names.
1: It's one of these great things, Pompeii. It's kind of forever rising from the dead and from destruction.
0: We've got the big topics. The man destroys seven legions in a day. No one in history has done that. Subscribe to The Ancients from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts from. Oh, and Russell Crowe, if you're listening, we would love to have you on The Ancients. Spread the word, people. Spread the word. This is After Dark. Myths, misdeeds and the paranormal.
1: The podcast that takes you to the shadiest corners of the past, unpicking history's spookiest, strangest and most sinister stories. I'm Maddie Pelling.
0: And I'm Anthony Delaney. Join us every Monday and Thursday, and we'll take a look at the darker side of history, from haunted pubs to Houdini, to witch trials and arsenic-laced breakfasts.
1: Follow After Dark, myths, misdeeds, and the paranormal wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. And you've got some new excavations coming up later on this year, I believe.
0: Yes, fingers crossed. Myself and my collaborators, Dig Ventures, will be out in September. I mean, obviously, <laughs> we were able to get out last year, so we were we were lucky, and that'll be our our sixth season uh, investigating our, our site. And, and what we've got, we've got an area, we've got the cemetery, we've already already talked about that, but we've also got what's increasingly looking like an area of, of metalworking, quite substantial, we're still having to, we're still just nibbling into the edge of that. Uh, we've got remains of animal bones, so that's telling us about diet on the island, so there's a lot to unpick, and then we've got um, a PhD student exploring the wider landscape of the island, because that's got a lot, a big story to tell of its own.
1: That's really exciting. I can't wait to, to see the results of it. But if we go back to the, the sort of area around Northumber, there's some other sites around there as well that are quite significant. Uh, places like Bamborough, for example, is not far off. Can you tell us something about those sites as well?
0: Yeah, in Bamborough, a lot of people will will know Bamborough through things like The Last Kingdom, and it's a very kind of famous castle. Many people it's often used for TV films, and it, it sits on a really impressive rocky crag overlooking the North Sea, and you can see it straight across from Lindisfarne. Only a couple of miles as a crow flies from Lindisfarne. And Bamburgh is really important because it was, it was a major palace, is probably the best term to use, of the kings of Northumbria. They would have had, I mean, early medieval kings were constantly moving around, so they would have had multiple homes, but this is certainly one of their major ones. And we know that um, Oswald, for example, who founded Lindisfarne, he was also a resident at Bamburgh, and that's been excavated by a fantastic research project going on for the last. Ten or so years, probably a bit longer than that, and they've been also excavating stuff which is exactly contemporary with what we've been finding. And I think it's really important to understand that proximity between Lindisfarne and, and Bamburgh because sometimes people have the idea that because Lindisfarne's an island, is that it's all about being really remote. And actually, I think that's the wrong way of looking at it. I think actually the important relationship is the fact that you're only four miles away from one of the most important royal sites in northumbria this is a, a high status landscape and this is a period where people are moving around by sea a huge amount because it's just quicker and easier than than walking and or going on horseback so jutting out into the north sea is not jutting out into something which is deserted you're actually jutting out into the shipping lanes so and i think this is probably why the vikings know about it because people are using the north sea This is a period when the North Sea trading networks are really emerging. So people would have known about it. And it's about, it's quite an ostentatious site. If they wanted remoteness, they could have found lots of other places to be remote. This is about making a statement. And you can imagine someone like Oswald being on the palisade of his palace at, at Bambra, just pointing across to his massive monastery, which he founded. So that's a really important relationship.
1: And this is a really interesting point that you made, actually, about all this contact and the, the fact that people are moving across the sea. And in the accounts and the reports, it seems very much like this is the first time these pagans come across. But are there other signs that there's contact with Scandinavians uh, prior to 793?
0: It's difficult to be absolutely sure about this. I mean, we've, but one of the troubles is some of the, the objects, the artefacts of the North Sea world, they're not always easy to locate to a particular place there's this kind of shared world where traders from york were meeting traders from frisia who are probably meeting traders from southern scandinavia they're all part of a shared world so one of our nicest finds is we've got a beautiful gaming piece a glass gaming piece which is I mean, whether it's from precisely before or after the, the Viking attacks, hard to say, but it's from broadly that period. And it's beautiful. It's got a fantastic parallel from a hill fort up in Scotland, a Pictish hill fort. And it's got great parallels from places like Dorstad in, in the Netherlands, another major trading centre. So you've got this kind of shared uh, material culture, a shared material world. And Vikings would have been part of that. They, you know, It wasn't everything about being a Viking, but they, they were aware are these trading routes they are aware of this world where is all this trading going on north North Northumbria has is generally seen as being a little bit too far north to be involved directly in it but i find it impossible to believe that if traders from the north sea are making their way up the humber to go to places like york they weren't pushing up further up the coast and exploring these places and scouting them out. You don't just randomly hit Lindisfarne by accident. You've got to know it's there, and you've got to know what it is as well. So I think there's, even if the 793 attack is the first clear emergence of that kind of Scandinavian connection, they must have known about it. They must have been exploring those waters before they arrived.
1: And going back to some of those sources, again, that you talked about at the beginning, there's one quite intriguing one, uh, which is these letters from Alcuin of York, who you can probably tell me more about. Now, he talks about the attack, but he's quite admonishing, and he's, he's sort of actually using this attack as, as a sign from God, as a sign that he's actually punishing the Northumbrians. Uh, could you tell me something more about
0: that? Yeah, I mean, early medieval historians, they don't write about current affairs or history in an objective way that it's all about particularly all the literature in this period is being created by monks so they see everything in the world all current affairs all things happened in the past they see that as the playing out of god's divine will or judgment and you know he, he would always see everything that happens as a Basically God expressing an opinion (laughs) about about contemporary behaviour. So yeah, the idea that something bad happens, bad things happen for a reason. Things happen because God is angry. So you have this idea that these heathen Vikings, they're non-Christian, they're they're kind of culturally completely different. And that it's more than just bad luck. These um, attacks are driven by failures of the kings of Christendom to be good good kings and this idea of writing and complaining about the Christian kings not being good enough it has got a long tradition it goes back to you know well before this period but Alcuin's really important because he's Northumbrian so he comes he, he certainly he has his origins in Northumbria he certainly was had had a career in New York but by the time of the Vikings he has been headhunted, as it were, by Charlemagne, who is soon to be the Holy Roman Emperor. He is someone who is plugged right into the very kind of beating political heart of Europe. And the fact that what's happened in Northumbria is being transmitted to the Holy Roman Emperor and his court is really, really important. This isn't just something which happens on the edge of a known world. It's something which has profound impact on the continental mainland and of course soon we know it's very easy to forget when we talk about the vikings uh, in britain we always tend to think of it as, as the kind of the viking impact on britain and ireland and the north atlantic the viking impact on continental europe and you know france and the low countries was incredibly profound so i think there's that sense that you know something nasty is coming coming our way because this part of Europe, the Carolingian Empire, they are part of that North Sea trading world as well. So they are interested and worried about anything that might impact on it.
1: Yeah, that's a really good point. I think there's this idea that it wasn't something just local, but those shockwaves that we mentioned at the beginning, because suddenly something is changing, something is stepping up and that, that this is why Lindisfarne is seen as so important in that whole history of the Viking Age, I suppose. So earlier, you talked about the different things that were taking place and that this was a, as a wider community. But I think most people think of these monasteries as very just religious affairs. But are there other things going on as well, like like trade? You're saying this is a part of, of those trading networks. Um, do you have any evidence for that?
0: Well, yeah, we're getting increasing numbers of Northumbrian coins. So these are coins which are mainly minted down in New York, which is right at the other end of Northumbria. You know, a good 100 plus miles to the south. And that's really interesting because in these northern parts of Northumbria where we are, the only places we're finding coin or coins of really being found, apart from Bamborough, are monastic sites. They don't seem to be using coins out in, in the wider country, but coinages are, are being used at monasteries. So it may be that these are... Centres for exchange, because it's on the coast. Also, this it would have been probably the biggest population. So there's you've got to imagine lots of workshops, farming going on, processing, you know, drying corn, making beer, all sorts of all sorts of things going on. It would have been a hive of activity. The number of people who would have been involved in making the Lindisfarne Gospel, for example, would have been tiny compared to the proportion of people who lived on the island and were basically spending all their time. Keeping themselves going and 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 running the farms, running the estates, and that kind of thing. So this is a big bustling bustling place of, of which the, the the religious kind of core is only a small part.
1: I think that really sums up why this was such a, a likely target for the Viking raiders. First of all, they've got the information with, with so many people going, trade going on, as you, as you rightly pointed out, that people would have known about it even over across in Scandinavia. And then you have the riches and uh, all the sort of valuables in the monastery. But presumably also this political significance, the fact that you can attack a site like that, must also, to some degree, have had an import- importance, don't you think?
0: Yeah, I mean, it would have been right under the nose of, of Bambra. I mean, they, when the Vikings arrived, you can see on on that bit of sea the the Bambra and Lindisfarne are both really important landmarks and they they knew not to attack the defended hill forts. they go straight for the monastery because they know that's where the wealth is and I think really crucially said it's wealth you can it's wealth you can carry off you can't you can't put four hundred cows on a boat but you can put we can put monks cause slaves was probably one of the key things they're after as much as anything and the portable wealth that stuff you can smash and grab and and, and go off with. Very very quickly. So yeah.
1: So is it quite likely that if you've got a big population there, that perhaps they took women and children, slaves, other people, slaves as well?
0: Yeah, I mean, presumably you go for whatever you can grab, and you know, you, you the, these raids probably aren't very long because it wouldn't have taken more than you know a couple of hours, and there would have been kind of reinforcements from places like Bambra. You go in, you grab what you can. Uh, And actually, in a sense, you don't want to destroy it all because you want to be able to come back and raid it again. So there's there's actually no real motivation for just completely killing the goose that lays the golden egg. You grab what you can and then you kind of take it away. Then you come back, come back later and start all over again.
1: Clearly, it was a a very successful one, seeing as it was so um, widely uh, reported. Now... Uh, In terms of of your your new excavations, just to round up, is there anything that you're really hoping that you're going to discover this year? What would your sort of uh, dream discoveries be?
0: (laughs) Well, the area we're looking at at the moment, we've got a metalworking area, and we've got lots of metalworking slags and um, industrial residues and a couple of bits of crucible at the moment. So that's all very well and good. What I would really like to find are the moulds for casting things. So... You know, we don't actually have much church metalwork in Britain from monastic sites because all the good stuff's in the graves from the west coast of Norway because the Vikings took it. Um, but it'd be great to actually, what we do find are, are the moulds. So we've we, you know, the moulds in which they pour the, the molten copper alloy to make the reliquaries and make the shrines and that kind of thing. So if we found those, that would make me very pleased because, you know, they must, the, the, the shrine is something like Cuthbert would have been incredibly elaborate. The Lindisfarne Gospels would have had an elaborate book cover on it. Um, there would have been multiple other reliquaries for all the other bits of saint which they had in the various churches there. So if we can find stuff like that I think that's what, what would make me most happy.
1: Amazing well I, I really hope that you do find that and then we can report back on that later in the year. And can people follow your excavations online? Do you have any sort of online presence for them
0: yes yes if you google dig ventures and lindisfarne uh, you will find the lindisfarne website where we have lots and lots of social media so people can follow us uh during our excavations in september and also our project is crowdfunded so if people follow that link they find all the information about crowdfunding and and, and how you can help us and how we can share back to you what we what we do on site and hopefully by september people will be able to actually come to the island and visit and we're in a public part of the island so stick your nose over and we're always happy to talk to you
1: fantastic well i'm definitely coming for a visit so that's me booked in already (laughs) that's brilliant thank you so much for for that david i can't wait to hear the rest of it Uh, i was really good to hear the context as well so good luck with the excavations and that was dr david petz from durham university talking about lindisfarne on the anniversary of the viking raid of 793 i really hope you enjoyed listening to this i am dr kat jarman and this has been gone medieval from history hit My co-host, Matt Lewis, will be back with another episode this coming Saturday. And in the meantime, please subscribe to the podcast so you don't miss any episodes. We have some really fantastic content coming up, so please do subscribe and share with your friends and family. And uh, we can't wait to share the rest with you.